Welcome to the SMB Community Podcast with your hosts, Amy Babinchak, James Kernan, and Carl Polichuk. Produced by and for the Small Biz Thoughts community, we're dedicated to making every IT professional a successful IT professional. Did you know that the average MSP spends 10 hours manually inputting accounting data each week? That time is 120 prospect calls, a month's worth of the business of tech, or building an entire Lego Death Star. Gazinta Mobius can make your life easier through accounting information. Automatic sync of invoices, expenses, and inventory from ConnectWise Manage into QuickBooks Online in just a single click of a button. With onboarding, direct support, and regular feature releases, Gazinta is a family-owned company dedicated to making software suck a little less each day. Visit them at G-O-Z-Y-N-T-A dot com. Hey everybody, this is Carl, and I want to have a different kind of podcast today. I want to talk a little bit about how I got started, some of the things I did right, and some of the things I did wrong in my super early years. You know, it's funny, when you do this for a while and you talk to a lot of people over many decades, well, a couple of decades, you begin to get a reputation as somebody who like, oh, he's successful and he did things right and he, you know, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes you don't get the complete story of what it took to get there in the first place. One of my favorite inspirational people of all time is Brian Tracy. So if you haven't heard of Brian Tracy, he's got some amazing audio programs. Go buy everything you can find and listen to it. (laughs) But one of the things he says is that, you know, everybody is suddenly successful after trying for 20 years. And, you know, sometimes I think that's the way it looks like, that people think you're successful or that you've always been successful. Let me take you back to before you ever met me or heard of me or saw any of my books. I went to the University of Michigan Graduate School in Political Science. And there I learned a whole lot about computers. And these were real computers. These were mainframes. These were the big iron, as they say. And there were a variety of different machines. But what's funny is I didn't I didn't really ever touch the machines. I touched the technology that touched the machines. And as a result, I was exposed to many new different kinds of technology. So this is way back in the 1980s. And I just fell in love with the technology and skip ahead a bit. So I found myself in the Sacramento area uh, teaching political science at several of the local colleges. Couldn't find a full-time teaching job at any of them. And eventually I got a job outside of technology working at a company that took information on coming legislation and what was going on in the state legislature and put it online so people could track it. Our clients were state agencies and lobbyists. 
And it was an extraordinarily powerful program that exposed me to new kinds of technology, uh, MPE and uh, the HP 3000, Novell, and similar sorts of things. And eventually, Microsoft introduced their Windows systems, and so I converted everything over to Windows-based technology. And it was great. It was a fun time. I was involved in politics. I was involved in technology. I was putting the two together. And when I left there, I thought I would take consulting gigs to help people to use that technology, to get even better information from their reports and from the stuff that was being produced by the state agencies and and corporations that were selling data. So I went looking for jobs and I got contacted by a recruiter from HP who wanted me to come be an outsourced manager for them. And I went through several uh, interviews with them. In fact, they flew in one person from Chicago to uh, do the final interview. And then they offered me a job that had absolutely nothing to do with what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> they offered me a job running the internal help desk for HP's Roseville plant. So I was the site manager for PC software support in Roseville. Now software means that we'd already drawn these nice dark lines before I showed up. There was a group that had a contract to deal with hardware and there was a group that had a contract to deal with software. So I ran the software group. I also managed backups for all of the servers on the site. There were two primary big buildings. Again, 5,000 employees, about 7,000 computer, desktop computers. But I dealt with the backups for the servers. And each building backed up the primary systems from the other buildings. And I learned a lot about really big installations of Microsoft networks on a static IP network system. You have to remember HP has a, a two-letter or two-digit domain. So they actually have a 10-dot domain. And so they can, they can subdivide it into subnets and, and supernets as they see fit. So there aren't a lot of A domains left in the world. Anyway, so that was a great job and I learned a lot about tech support and team management and so forth. I managed a team of about between 25 and 30 people and that included the Unix help desk and the backup systems and all of the remote work systems for people who were authorized to work from home, which was a big deal uh, back in the mid-1990s. And then after that, I got lured away to a company called RTI, Retail Technologies International. And RTI had a system where they did point of sale and inventory control. And each of their machines for inventory control, the stores would literally telephone each other. They would pick up the phone and dial each other every night and then transfer information about their sales for the day and so forth. And 
My job was to help them invent systems to do this over the internet. And related to that, there was a new operation to develop something called EDI, Electronic Data Interchange. And EDI was done over telephone lines back in the day because telephone systems could bill in six second increments. So a machine could dial up another machine, do the modem connection, transfer the data, and hang up. And it's amazing how much data can be shipped across a wire at the speed of light in six or 12 seconds. And so it was a very reasonably priced way of moving data. But I got them connected up to the internet and basically the, the commercial internet, the World Wide Web was available starting in 1994. Before that, when I was at Legitech, uh, I actually had to write an essay of why we should be allowed to connect to the internet because it was not open to commercial use. So you had to give an explanation of how you were gonna provide an actual usable resource uh, that would allow you to take part in this government-funded uh, interconnect. But by the time I got to Arnet, it was 1996 or so, I was able to just get them connected to the internet and not have to write an essay or anything. It was very expensive and it was reasonably slow at the time, but I built their first website and developed a system for moving these EDI packets. The protocol for EDI is called X12. And so uh, we moved X12 EDI packets over the internet securely in an encrypted zipped format that I created. And we became the first internet-based electronic data interchange. And we put Nike and Wrangler onto EDI systems so that they could connect up to the much bigger EDI interconnects, including IBM and Sterling software. So that was a fun job and I learned a lot and so forth, but it didn't take very long. And I found myself as a ridiculously overpaid technician with not very much interesting to do because we'd solved <laughs> By Y2K, we'd solved most of their problems. So I went to my boss and I said, hey, I need to, uh, I need to transition out of this as a full-time gig and I wanna take on other clients, which means I need to move my contract to four days a week and then three days a week and then two days a week. And, and that way you can let me go slowly and feel safe that I'm still in touch, but I can go get other clients. So that's how I became the kind of consultant who has multiple clients at one time instead of just one client at a time. I made that transition smoothly because given my arrangement, I could just add a client, add some money, and then eventually uh, reduce my commitment to RTI. So by the time 1999 rolled around, I had a pretty good business and a number of clients and there's a handful of things I did that actually separated me from the so-called competition. At the time, I've never met anybody who I would consider competition. I'd met a few people in the business, uh, but they didn't seem particularly interested in 
worrying about the business. They just wanted to play with technology. So I would go to Microsoft events. I signed up to be a Microsoft partner and I would go to these events and I would be the only local computer consultant at these events. And so, you know, they did once a quarter, Microsoft would come around, they'd put on a show, they'd get a bunch of small businesses together. And then they'd say, hey, and if you need anybody to help you with this stuff, talk to that guy in the back of the room, his name's Carl. And so I literally got clients because I was the only one who showed up. But the things that I did differently that I, I didn't know that other people didn't do. First of all, I signed contracts. I didn't know that people in small business at the time didn't commonly sign contracts. I had worked with government agencies who always signed contracts. I had worked with Fortune 10 companies that always signed contracts. When I did an interconnect between Arnet and the uh, IBM or Sterling software, believe me, there was a contract. When I dealt with Nike, believe me, there was a contract. And so it never occurred to me to not have contracts. When I was running Legitech, I had a server room that's probably 20 by 40 feet, uh, 72 modems, two different kinds of backup systems. We were running Windows NT, which was new at the time, as well as Novell uh, and one Unix system, because at the time, the only way to get email out of Exchange and onto the internet was it had to go through a Unix server. So that's how old I am. <laughs> anyway, all of those things had maintenance contracts, and it never occurred to me that I would not have contracts. So one of the first things I had to do when I became a computer consultant was figure out a contract, go to a lawyer, have it blessed, and then use that to manage my relationships with my clients. And I think that that separated me from a lot of people that were seen as amateurs because they didn't sign contracts. Uh, the second thing that I did for no reason at all, no rational reason whatsoever is I charged $100 an hour. So this was, you know, the late 90s. And the only reason I charged 100 is because I thought that if I could bill 40 hours a week, that's 2,000 hours a year at $100 an hour, that's $200,000. And that seemed like a, a good way to make a living as far as I was concerned. And I figured, worst case scenario, I'll bill half of that, which means I'm still making $100,000. Well, of course, as you know, nobody bills 2,000 hours. If you, if you do, you are either cheating somebody or you're just selling huge blocks of time that never get delivered. Because you have sales meetings and you have, you have things that you don't get paid for and, you know, it's just not possible to, to bill 100%. So I learned that along the way, but because I started at 100, I literally had no idea. Even today, I don't know what people were charging for tech support in Sacramento, California in the late 90s. I have since learned it's probably not $100 because even in uh, 2000, 2005, 2010, I don't think most people were charging $100. But I decided to charge $100 an hour and then 
gradually increased it whenever I thought it was too easy to get a new client. And so, you know, it didn't take me very long that I had and I actually raised my rates. The next thing that I did that I think was different from everybody else is because of my background, because of the background of Big Iron and data that absolutely and definitively could not be lost and could not experience downtime. I had built systems, you know, Legitech had a system that eventually by the time I left, we had moved from two states to four states and it could not go down. The one time we experienced downtime at Legitech, it was a failed hard drive on a, a mini computer, a, you know, most people would call it a mainframe, but technically speaking, it's an HP mini. That was a, one of those big 12 inch hard drives. And it took the company down because the restore was a restore from 58 reel to reel tapes. So the company was down for about 24 hours. Um, and that cost many, many thousands of dollars. And so, you know, after years of never having downtime, we had that one incident and then put systems in place to make sure it never happened again. And, you know, that was a big company run and owned by an even much bigger corporation. And they had the money and, and, it, and it didn't matter. I didn't have that kind of money, but I knew that I could build rock solid systems um, based on good technology, based on things like at the time, Cisco was the only company to consider for routing equipment and Compaq was the only server to consider using in legit uh, businesses that had to be Windows based and had to have zero downtime. But more importantly, I knew that if I had a perfect backup, a full backup and not uh, an incremental backup, but a full backup every night of absolutely everything, that the worst case scenario is that I could say, look, within 24 hours, we will have you back in business no matter what happens. And if clients were not willing to do that, I literally did not sign them as clients. And I don't know what it is in my brain that I was willing to walk away from people who would not pay for their own well-being. But that little thing, that switch in my brain uh, has kept me from having a lot of really bad clients. When I talk to people who say, well, clients won't pay for this and they won't pay for that. My experience is I was able to walk away from them and go find other clients. I do think that very frequently we end up telling ourselves a story about who our clients are and what our clients want and what our clients will do and what our clients won't do. And then we go find clients who fit the model of our self-perception. So I found myself in the late 90s with a gaggle of clients. I think I had about 15 clients total at the time who were paying me regularly and I always was maintaining their backups. The third thing that I did that's completely different from a lot of people at the time is I sold maintenance. Now, this was easier once SBS was on the scene, but even before that, I used a, a, 
tool called Servers Alive, which still exists. And uh, it used to be free for most stuff. But Servers Alive, you could say, this machine does email, so I want you to connect to this machine every five minutes and open a connection to the email port. You don't have to do anything. Just open the connection. If that fails, send me a page. So this was back in the days of pagers. Um, and, and so we could do that. And then if the machine is doing FTP, open the FTP connection. If it succeeds, do nothing. If it fails, send me a page. If a machine is down. So I basically, I was monitoring whether a machine, whether each of its functions, web, FTP, email, and so forth, were working and monitoring the machine itself. So if the machine itself failed and needed to be rebooted, I would get a page when it went down and I would get a page when it went back up. So this was kind of cool because I could be talking to clients and then my buzzer would go off and I'd look at my belt and I'd say, oh yeah, that's ABC company there. Their server just rebooted. I better go over there. And you know that was kind of cool for clients. But it allowed me to sell a service where every month I went in and manually applied all the patches, all the fixes, all the updates to every hardware device. Every server, every printer, every laptop, every desktop, everything that could be patched and fixed, I patched and fixed under the philosophy that every time you call tech support, the first question is, What's the version number? What's the patch level? What's the, uh, right? And if you didn't say that you're on the latest version with the latest patches, they said, okay, go fix your stuff and then call me back because they knew that that was going to fix most of the problems. So I did patches, fixes, and updates every month for every client. And then I said, well, I should just have a checklist of all the stuff I do. And so every month I would go in and I would check to make sure that they didn't run out of hard disk space, make sure that all the services were running, make sure that their network connectivity was good, on and on and on. And I did this list, which if you just Google 68-point checklist, you'll find my 68-point checklist. Uh, latest version is, is over at store.smallbizthoughts.com. But basically, I created this 68-point checklist of you know how we do tune-ups on servers. And it became the monthly maintenance checklist for my company. And then I started using an RMM tool. And I started with Kaseya for a number of reasons, but uh, we moved away from them because they were very expensive. But basically, once I bought Kaseya, once I bought an RMM, I could now do the monitoring of all those machines and a bunch of laptops and desktops in real time. There was no more waiting for servers alive to give me a ding. I would I would get it right off the machine directly into my monitoring system. It also allowed me, because I bought a bunch of licenses, to say, oh, okay, now I can go get more clients because I can monitor more things at the same time. And it allowed me to automate patching so that I could then say, I've done all the patches, fixes, and updates, and We've done, you know, 80% of the monthly maintenance is done every 60 seconds instead of once a month. And so we were able to take on more and more clients. And so basically, 
that allowed us to be set. I now had a bunch of clients I had monitoring, patching, updating, and I was going into every client every month and performing roughly an hour's worth of labor on their server and very frequently an hour or sometimes two hours on all of the miscellaneous desktops. But again, it allowed me to visit every client every month and then I was basically set for the one last thing that made me a modern IT service provider. And that is, I somehow got this little thought in my head that I should make a, a, basically a flat fee that covered maintenance. Again, you know me, no ad move change. This is maintenance only. But basically, if I knew it was going to take me an hour for the server and about 15 minutes per desktop per month on average over the course of the year, I could flat fee my services and now I did patching, fixing updates. I verified the backup every month. That way I was absolutely brutal about that. There's no question I must be allowed to test every backup every month and force clients to store their backup media offsite. And then I put in the flat fee service and that is literally how I went from being somebody who was a consultant getting started to uh, offering what we today call managed services. So the flat fee piece was put in place around 2004, 2005. And so in terms of the timeline, you get a sense for that. And then my first book on network documentation came out in 2005. And uh, basically the rest is history. Now, that's the beginning of, of my trek to manage services. And let me tell you, along the way, I had to learn all the lessons about clients who don't pay their bills and people who order stuff and then don't take delivery or people who pay for one thing and want you to do something else or pay for little and wants a lot and right i i had to learn all the hard knocks that all of you have had to learn over the years so i didn't i didn't skip any of those lessons but to me based on my background it was a logical rational one step at a time process that got me to uh, a system of recurring revenue. So that's, that's I guess, the history of, of my managed services part one. Uh, and at some point, if you have an interest, send me an email. And if you think this is of interest, I will do history of managed <laughs> services part two from my perspective. Uh, but, you know, I just thought I'd throw this out there as uh, a different kind of podcast and something that might be of interest. If you like it, give it a thumbs up. Make sure you subscribe to the channel and uh, leave comments and quotes. And if you do find it interesting, please send me an email and let me know. Thank you all and have a spectacular week. Thank you for tuning in to the SMB Community Podcast. If you found this useful, interesting, or fun, please subscribe, share with your friends, and give us a thumbs up on your favorite social media. 
please check out the show notes at smbcommunitypodcast.com and give us your feedback.